Hi, and welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I'm your host, Jen Milius, and I'm so glad that you're here and can't wait to introduce to you Joanna Peters. Joanna Peters is the indie author of the award-winning novel, The Girl in the Triangle. The Girl in the Triangle won a number of awards in 2021, including the IBPA's Ben Franklin Award for Best Historical Fiction and the Book Excellence Award for Best Multicultural Fiction. Joanna is also building up a self-publishing coaching business to empower other authors with the joy and autonomy of the process. Let's dive into the pond and meet Joanna. Welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I am so excited to bring to you Joanna Peters. Joanna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited you're here and I would love for you to start with how to get into writing. Sure. Um, Well, I've been kind of writing since I was little. Um, I was the kid that was being scolded in the back of the classroom that I was like writing little stories to pass around to my friends um, and, you know, not doing whatever work I was supposed to be. But so it's sort of been, I think, you know, just a passion I always had. Um, I'm the kid that in my middle school yearbook, I had said that I wanted to be an author when I grew up. So I guess I'm very fortunate that I've made it happen. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I think that's really sweet. And it's interesting where, how your path started at such a young age where some, in the sense that there was something that said, this is something I want to do. I think this is cool. And not all children follow the, or end up in the path that they say, and you did. So would you talk a little bit about how that evolved? I was gonna say, there were a lot of twists and turns before I (laughs) (laughs) But to be fair, I think also, you know, um, storytelling was always a big part of my family. Um, My father, actually. Um, So my dad would always, he was a natural storyteller. And we, part of my bedtime story routine with him as a child is he would come in and he'd sit down and be, what do you want to hear about tonight? And I'd be like, oh, a princess, then a dragon. And he'd be like, okay. And then he'd weave together a story for me. And so I think I grew up with this very natural storytelling expectation. And it was just something that was always a tight-knit bond that we shared. Um, I think my my toast at my wedding was actually even my dad starting off with one of his stories. And it just brought the whole room down in tears. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. I love that so much. That is so sweet. So, so. So with his storytelling inspiring you, Mm -hmm. how did that help you to get your first book going? My first book took me a long time to write. (laughs) Um, So I was still teaching full-time. I was an English teacher in Fairfax County, um, middle school, high school, the gamut. Um, But so back around 9-11, to be perfectly fair, is actually kind of where the idea for my story started. I, I am a New Yorker, if anyone knows. And um, around the time that 9-11 occurred, there were some photographs that were published in the newspapers up there of people jumping from the Trade Center next to people jumping from the Triangle Factory. And those stories just really stuck with me, those photographs. Um, and then around the centennial of the fire in 2011, 
I was, as I said, I was full-time teaching, but I was also participating in an MFA creative writing program. And I needed to come up with my thesis topic. And I just decided, you know, I've, I've always loved historical fiction as a genre. And again, those stories came back to me and I wanted to pick up and write these stories. So I decided to explore and tell the women of the Triangle Factory stories. That's amazing. So would you talk a little bit about how you went about the research for that? How you, how you started from, I have this idea and I see these photos <laughs> to going further with that? So um, it went a lot of different ways over the years. I mean, it took me 10 years to write this first book. Um, but so it started off that uh, there was one photograph in particular I found uh, digging through some of archives of the newspapers. And there was a photograph of a woman and a man in one of the building windows um, sharing a kiss before they jumped. And I knew I wanted to do something with that particular photograph. And then it was sort of then building the story around, you know, because my mind went to also, well, what if it wasn't a completely romantic moment? What if there was more behind it? And um, if you've read Girl in the Triangle, you know where it does end up. <laughs> so where did that story, where that particular photograph led me? But um, there were a lot of field trips. I spent a lot of time up at the Tenement Museum up in New York City. Um, I did a lot of neighborhood walking tours and walked the path that Ruth and Abraham would take every day from the building on Orchard Street to the Brown Building. Um, I also went to the Eldred Street Synagogue, which was the first synagogue down in the area that they would have attended down in that area. Um, and then just a lot of, you know, I would come up with a part of the story where it was like, okay, was Kat Steli around then? check and find out and having to dig and find out. Um, would this brand of, you know, Manischewitz, you know, would that be around back then? So things that would just come up naturally in the story writing, they'd be like, hmm, I have to check and see if this is accurate. <laughs> but it kind of becomes, I call it my rabbit holes that I, that I go down. <laughs> but it, it's a really fun element, I think, that is a gift in historical fiction writing, that not only is it just making the story come to life, it's you know, having to dig and find out what's historically accurate as well. So you get this research, you decided, you know, which rabbit holes to follow, which ones to go, I've got this, I'm going to put it in a parking lot. And you're working on your, your drafts. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to like, how did you go about writing it in such a way that you could get the book done? Because Sometimes the rabbit holes can cause you to have almost like an analysis paralysis feeling. Oh, or, so, so how did you get that first draft mm -hmm. and then subsequent drafts completed? So you can say, I have this manuscript ready to move <laughs> to the next step. I have an amazing critique group <laughs> and they are fantastic for so many reasons. One, they're my built-in accountability um, because part of the reason why it also took me 10 years to write this is, um, I mean, there was a, a wedding in there, two very young children who I went through babies <laughs> during this time as I was writing. Um, and, and my writing group kept me sane to some extent where it was like, okay, um, let's use writing as your escape from this chaotic craziness of life. Um, and also knowing that, you know, I had to have pages ready by a certain day to, to get turned in. And in that, you know, there would be subsequent drafts. They'd be like, 
this isn't working. Um, this is not necessary. This feels like a historical history lesson drop. <laughs> you found all this great research. It's not really working to the story. Unfortunately, you need to cut it. Um, and those are like, you know, killing your darlings are so hard. But there are times also where they'd be like, oh, like that's actually how the idea for the three storylines came to be. Is first, I was just writing from Ruth's perspective. And it was one of my critique group members who brought up saying, I really would love to hear some of this from Abraham's point of view. And so that opened a can of worms. <laughs> so um, I think it's really helpful for any writer, if you can, to find a good critique group because um, they, they challenge you, they help you. Um, and as I said, it, it adds all of those elements too bringing your accountability and all of that to the writing process. I love that you switched lanes. You know, you were willing to switch to see another point of view and to your point, the can of worms that can happen. <laughs> that. But how did you work through that? How did you handle the different points of view so that you were clear on their voices and their, their personalities are coming through and you're, they're bumping up against each other and the setting and everything else happening. And it's all still moving forward. How, how did you keep it straight? It was tough. Um, and some of the voices honestly came more naturally than others. Um, I think Ruth and I are probably very similar in personality. <laughs> so Ruth came very naturally and easy for me to write. Um, Abraham and Esther were tougher. Abraham in particular, writing from a man's point of view was something I had never done before. And there were definite times that, again, my critique group would sit there and say, you know, a guy wouldn't say that. <laughs> so there'd be times I'd have to like, I honestly even went to my husband and sat down with him. I'm like, so what would be your natural response to the situation like this? And, you know, or on, um, there are times I even would sit in a restaurant or someplace out in public and just listen to guys talk and kind of try and write that down a little bit and be like, all right, how can I make this sound more guy-like? Um, and Esther, Esther was really tough for me to find how I wanted her to, um, like she honestly came across first, my, my writing group point blank told me to like, she sounds like milk on toast. Sorry, she's boring. <laughs> That's another thing. They didn't mince words with me. And, you know, at first I always go through my like, oh, like total like coming home and being so like, you know, brought down to like the bottoms of like, they didn't like it. How am I gonna get past this? And then, you know, um, so it's funny, I'm really into Zodiac and I'm a cancer, you know, from July. So I always joke around that my cancer, the crab comes out. Like first I go deep <laughs> into my shell, but then I come out with my claws, like scrapping. I'm like, all right, how am I gonna tackle this? So then I go into problem solving mode. I'm like, all right, so how can I make Esther more fun? How can I make her have a, a cause of her own that makes her more relatable to other people? And that's where I started some research on finding also um, what would be a more reserved traditional cause that could make her an activist in her own right. And that's how I ended up finding all the information about, um, you know, the, uh, the, the yeshivas and the teaching position for her in the, you know, the Jewish college and everything. And all of that was factually accurate that I had to do more research to find. But once I found Esther's niche, it really came together. I love that so much because what you're <laughs> demonstrating is a few things. You know, it, you're talking about the different passes and the different and the processes to go through, but you're also what I'm hearing is that 
you'd write some, you'd get some feedback, you might write some more and just keep it moving to get that draft going, but recognizing I need, I need more over here for Esther. Okay. So that tells me more research, but you, did you go and try to incorporate that feedback? And so it was showing up in the future stuff, or did you say, I know I need to do this, but I got to get this first draft passed. And then I'm going to come back with my next pass and really incorporate all of these things even more. Therefore, I might need more research. A little bit of both. Okay. Um, there are times when I could see, okay, you know, um, this is going to be, I call it my like big little problem solutions. <laughs> if you, I'm a big outliner, by the way, and my outlines become like probably like, you know, 10, 20 page volumes in and of themselves. <laughs> so I'll go through and I, and I do it with highlighted colors because I am a little anal retentive too. So I have sort of like, okay, this is like, you know, a small problem that I can fix more easily. Like, you know, this dialogue isn't working in this particular section. Like, okay, that's a small level problem. I can fix it. I can send it back in to get another draft writing. But usually when I see like, it's a bigger, like more rabbit hole problem I need to go down, <laughs> that might get put reserved on the shelf for a little while. And I move forward and maybe work on that in the background until I feel I've had my aha moment to go back in and really fix it. Oh, I love all of that. That is just so, so cool. I love how you described it because that aha moment feels like, oh, now I see it. I can see how this fits. And then you will yeah. also have an inkling about, okay, so with this, now that I know this, where do I, do I have some immediate ideas where I know I can put a note to myself, like go back to chapter three and double check this reference or chapter three is where I want to make sure I'm showing a little bit more of what this aha is, even if it's just a seedling that I'm planting just to mm -hmm. show a little bit more. So that's what I'm hearing you be able uh, yeah. to do. That's pretty much exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. and, and for the record, those aha moments oftentimes happen, like, you know, when I'm walking the dog or in the shower or driving, you know, where they come. <laughs> but that's, but that's the beauty of it too, because, you know, that happens all the time to me, even when, mm -hmm. whether I'm editing or whether I'm working on my own pieces, but I, you know, your mind is working on that topic or on that manuscript in some way, because there are times, even with my editing clients, I mean, I'll have worked on their piece. I take a break because that break is necessary. Just like you're talking about, take the break, take the pause. And then I'm in the middle of like fixing dinner or doing something else and something hits and I'll make a note yes. to myself. Or I'll send a note to my person and say, hey, this is what's running through my mind. Just heads up. This is what's here. I'll follow up. Let me do a little bit more. Or I just take the note to myself and go back and look at this. What mm -hmm. about this more so? Because you've had the space, but your mind is sitting there creatively going, oh, now I have the time to actually work on this because you're not <laughs> trying to physically push through sometimes. So there's that give and take. It, it really is. And I think that's, you know, the interesting part of the writing process is that um, it, it is always happening, whether you're really actively sitting at the keyboard, like, you know, physically writing, but, oh no, those characters are talking to you all the time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Is that whole, like, reaction, the voices in my head to answer them. <laughs> so true. So true. So let's fast forward. We have the manuscript. We're ready to, to get it published and out into the world. So would you talk about how you discern what path to take and you know, how you made that happen? Sure. So um, 
I decided not to go the traditional route. I, um, so there was a couple of reasons. One, um, I knew that the 110th anniversary of the Triangle Fire was coming out. Um, so I wanted to try and see if I could time the, time, the release of my manuscript around that. Um, and also um, it was in the midst of the pandemic and I needed a Kickstarter project for sanity. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm gonna make this happen. Um, and so I think I'd also always been intrigued by self-publishing, but I wanted to do it right. Um, and, and I say that because I think there is still a little bit of a stigma associated with it to some extent. Um, I think that people still fit, view it as that opportunity to just, you know, toss a manuscript up on Kindle and call it a day. I think that going through the research and finding the way to actually have it be a true business opportunity um, does it take it, you know, obviously a whole different level of commitment. So I chose to actually set up my own independent publishing company, Amaryllis Press. Um, and I wanted to go through the process and retain autonomy and control of knowing that I could choose the cover designer that I wanted. And I absolutely fell in love with Domini. She is amazing. <laughs> so, um, and I would always continue working with her in the future too. Um, but she and I just were able to share the vision and talk through the process. And that was still, I felt an ownership for me in that this is what I wanted, you know, the idea of the cover to look like, and I was able to be involved in that process. Um, same with choosing, you know, my editors. I found people that I felt shared my vision for the book and was able to work hand in hand with. Um, and then there was also, you know, things that I wanted to learn on my own. So I did all the interior layout myself. I learned about how to set up and do my own marketing. And I think that's something that a lot of authors don't realize is that um, even if you do go the traditional route, you're still gonna largely be responsible for most of your marketing anyway. <laughs> so I think, you know, knowing that um, you're going to have to do that, you can also at least retain more of the financial um, attribute of that, that, you know, I make more per copy self-published than I would if I had chosen traditionally publish. So I think it was kind of a lot of that that all went through as I was reading about it that really just appealed to me about the self-publishing process and why I chose it. I love how you described the, because you could you can feel the care that you wanted to put into the book <laughs> yeah. in the sense, I mean, but I, but I mean that in the sense that, you know, I wanted to have a certain cover design. I wanted a certain release timeframe. I think that you, by doing that, you're right, self-publishing enabled you to be able to yes. do that because you did retain the autonomy and the ability to do that. So how did, if I may ask, how did the first book go in that way? Like, did you feel like you did? Because I know you have another book. So yeah. how, what tweaks would you did you make between book one and book two? And I know book two is really the prequel to book one. Yes. Which is awesome. <laughs> so. I went out of order, sorry guys. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so um, it went well, and I, but it was obviously a learning curve. <laughs> Come on. Um, but no, I, I did hit my goals. Um, I did, um, you know, I had the wonderful book release party. Like we called it 
So triangle, my friends and I joked around that it was my book baby. And so we had to have like a huge big baby shower for it. You know, my launch party. <laughs> I love it. So it, it was definitely very celebratory. Um, and I, you know, so I think there was a large part of just the celebration of a, an accomplishment of publishing the book in the first place. And so there was that level. And then when I actually started actually gain some success from the book. There was, I'm not gonna lie, there was that little bit of like, you know, shock even in myself of like, wow, people actually like this. <laughs> that are not my friends and family. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> so, you know, you get some reviews and then um, I think obviously what really made it amazing was um, when I did win a few of the awards. Um, and so that kind of became the sort of, okay, now I need to view this a little bit more as potential real business. So how can I build upon that? So when I started to tackle the second book, preparing for, for publication, um, there were, you know, different choices. Okay, I've gained, I feel knowledge enough and confidence in this level of the process. This part, I really did not enjoy the first time around. So I'm going to look for someone else to see if they can help me with that. And so there were some of those choices. Um, there were also some choices on what I felt um, was financially worth it versus what had not been the first time around. So there was a little bit more of that sort of budgeting and rate of return, um, you know, that the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and so cut some things that way too. Now that I'm really glad the way you explained that, because you're right there, the learning that's happening between each book, it, it, it just like it's, it's demonstrating another form of how like the chapters are building, just like the critique group, mm -hmm. it, the writing got stronger as you went along and then subsequent drafts, but so does your business because yeah. you might not, you don't know what you don't know, but you're willing to put yourself out there and try and then taking the time to learn and say, okay, what worked well? What did I enjoy? What would I like more of, or what do I need more of, but I didn't enjoy doing myself or what was like a no, this, this really wasn't necessary. Glad I tried it, but I don't need to do it again. And I, I love how you framed it too, because it's just showing the evolution that's happening when you're, yeah. especially viewing it as a business, just like you said. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing for any author to really remember is something also that might have worked for somebody else. Isn't necessarily going to work for you. Um, so for instance, like I kept hearing all about these book promo deals and making sure that you put them out there, like, you know, in the just Kindle books or all of these little, um, you know, the, the emails that come out to everybody with the book listings and offering a discount. I tried a few of those. I didn't feel they were worth the rate of return for me. Um, or even I keep hearing about ads and marketing. And that's something I do want to tackle in the future. But it's not something I feel that is necessary for me at this point in time. Um, just how we've talked about, you know, even just catering to our strengths and what we enjoy about the writing process and everything. I really enjoy author community and I really enjoy networking. So about last Christmas, I found, um, I, I did a holiday market, a little festival. And that was one of my most financially 
fantastic weekends. Oh, that's <laughs> it was all direct sales that came from me. But honestly, it was also the most rejuvenating to my soul because I got to meet my readers and I got to talk with them and geek out about history and, you know, things like that and their favorite book choices in the genre and et cetera. And therefore, I also had a number of people sign up for my newsletter list that day. And I was able to start building my newsletter. And so now I'm regularly on the festival circuit and that I have learned is something that works for me. I find them, you know, a way, as I said, to get best in direct sales. And that's where I focus my efforts, but it's also my great way of building my reader community. Oh, I love that. And I like you, I, I like the in-person type of events too, because it's such a joy to be able to connect with people and to hear their different stories or to get their perspective or or meet someone who's excited about the fact that they've, that they read your book or that they know someone or what have, I love that. I think that that's really cool. Oh, I love that you said that. So you've mentioned, so we've talked a lot about self-publishing in the sense that that's the direction you chose. That's how you wanted to, you've been evolving it in for yourself, but would you talk a little bit more about like, like the beauty in the sense of, of self-publishing and why it's, you want to like get rid of the stigma and disrupt it a bit. <laughs> so again, I think I said, um, you know, finding that people have certain expectations sometimes about it. And one thing that I have found is I think um, there is two different types of authors I have found out there. There are some who are intimidated by the process and some who feel that it's just um, not going to be accepted in their particular genre. Um, so one thing in particular, um, my book is considered a YA adult crossover. And so I have a number of people in the children's book industry, especially who really feel it's just not possible to publish, you know, to self-publish in the children's book industry. And I think that's very false. (laughs) Um, So one thing, you know, I have a a good friend of mine. I I love her dearly. um, And she's been very skeptical the entire time. And I think I'm starting to get to her actually. (laughs) (laughs) But she has said, she's like, you know, but adults go in, like the parents are the ones that are going to buy the book and they go into the bookstore and they need to see it. They need to feel it. I was like, when's the last time you've honestly, and be real, when's the last time you've really gone into a bookstore and shopped for a children's book? Like, I know myself, I have two young children. All my shopping's on Amazon. I'm sorry. I hate being beholden to the beast, but I am. (laughs) So you find out a title usually through word of mouth anyway, and you can order it wherever. And my books are still available in independent bookstores or on the Barnes and Noble website. So if you really want to support those businesses, you can still place an order right on their website and go and pick it up in store. So there's so many ways around it if you just sort of know how to to do it and to advertise it that way. So I think it's education to some point in, you know, teaching people how they can and why they do. And then I do also think it's, you know, again, showing people like, hey, I've done it. It's some work, but this is something you can do too. Like even people who are really intimidated by the marketing or learning these things. Okay. You know what? I can even talk you through it. So I actually have started some coaching um, and I'm, I do have a couple of people who have come on already that were friends of mine. Like I have a, one of my intimidated friends, I'm teaching her how to do it. And she is really excited by the process now. So I think it's, you know, it's a work in progress for people. I love that. 
so, so much. I, that's what this space, this particular, this, that's what my business wants to, is about where it's helping others to achieve the goals that they want to achieve and to help to be a guide in that way. And that's what this show is. And I love that there's another kindred spirit so, so much. It makes my heart so happy. Diana, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Where can people connect with you? Where can they get your books? So um, I'm available on joannapeters.com is my website. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at Joanna Peters author. My books are available on my site and also on Amazon or any of the websites we just talked about. <laughs> and if somebody was interested in getting guidance from you, how did they do that? Um, joannapeters.com. There is an author services page. I have my coaching up there and I'm also going to soon have a self-publishing course and some books also about the self-publishing process. Awesome. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. It has been a delight. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad you were here and know there were some valuable nuggets shared to keep going, keep writing, and keep sharing your work. I'm a big believer that if you have a book that's in your heart to write, then there's someone else out there who needs to read it. Your story needs to be shared, so you have to write it and get it out into the world. Until next time, keep swimming upstream while going with the flow and get your book into the world. To learn more about Tough Fish and jump into the pond, visit jennifermilius.com forward slash tough fish.